We read together from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 6. Teaches us about the type of mediator that we need. Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which is sin should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise, later yet it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets, and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, finally yet it fulfilled through his only Son. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you ever wonder if all your sins are forgiven? Even the most terrible sins? Do you believe that they are truly forgiven? That God has wiped the slate clean? We know that God is a holy God and that he hates sin. We are sinful people. In the course of life, we experience God's forgiveness for many of our sins. But there are certain sins that we may view as being particularly horrible. There are sins that we may still carry around as a heavy burden today. Sins that we have confessed, but about which we still feel guilty. Sometimes people say that all sins are equal. And in a certain sense, that is true. Any sin that we commit makes us guilty of an offense against the most high majesty of God and deserving of his condemnation. But in many respects, the sins we commit are not equal. Some sins are less serious. Others are much more serious. There is a difference between being angry with someone and murdering him. There's a difference between experiencing lustful thoughts and practicing sexual immorality. Some sins have more serious consequences than others. Murdering someone will likely result in doing jail time. Committing adultery will have a serious impact on your marriage, and it could lead to separation or divorce. Some sins also have a greater impact on our relationship with God. They make us feel particularly guilty. Despite confessing such sins and repenting of them, 
We may still feel insecure in our relationship with God. We wonder if we're truly forgiven or if God in some way will still hold that sin against us. How are we to deal with our guilt? Is there any way to overcome our guilt and be assured that our sins truly are forgiven in Christ? There is. This afternoon, we'll focus our attention on the rituals involved in the Day of Atonement, which Israel celebrated once each year. We'll pay particular attention to the function of the scapegoat. We'll see how Christ came in fulfillment of this Old Testament ritual and how he restores us to righteousness and life. I preach to you the word of God under the following theme. As our scapegoat, Christ bore our sins in order to restore us to righteousness and life. We'll see how Christ, as our scapegoat, bore our sins. And we'll see how we are restored to righteousness and life. Leviticus 16 begins with a reminder about the death of Aaron's two sons. They brought unauthorized fire before the Lord, with the result that fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. It's mentioned as a warning. The high priest was not allowed to come at any time into the holy place behind the curtain. If he did, he would die. For God lived in the innermost part of the temple, in the cloud, over the mercy seat. We know from Exodus that the glory of the Lord came down to dwell among his people, and that it was like a consuming fire. Nobody was allowed to approach God except at the specified time and in the manner decreed by him. According to God's command, once per year, God's people celebrated the Day of Atonement. It was a special festival in Israel. Unlike the pilgrim feast, the people were not required to gather at the temple. Yet they were required to treat this day as a Sabbath day and rest from their work. This is also the only day of the year in which God's people were commanded to fast. The Day of Atonement was a special day in Israel. For on it the high priest would enter the most holy place to make atonement for the people's sins. Much of Leviticus 16 deals with the preparations that the high priest needed to make to approach God in the innermost part of the temple. He had to offer a bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering to make atonement for himself and for his house. To make atonement is to wipe away sin, to rub off pollution. Aaron and his house needed to be cleansed from sin before he could make atonement for the sins of God's people. Aaron was also required to wash himself with water and to put on linen garments. He did not enter the throne room of God with all his priestly regalia. The normal priestly vestments did not serve the humility required on this day when the high priest represented God's sinful people seeking forgiveness for all their sins. Once Aaron had made all the proper preparations, he was to take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats 
for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. The two goats were set before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Aaron cast lots over the goats. One was chosen as an offering to the Lord. The other was chosen as a scapegoat. The first goat was offered as a sin offering. Its blood was sprinkled over the mercy seat in the holy place behind the veil. It was to make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. Thus, through this goat, atonement was made for Israel's sins. The second goat was used in a special ceremony. This goat was presented before the Lord. Aaron laid both of his hands on the live goat's head. Then he would confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. Aaron put them on the head of the goat, and then he sent it away into the wilderness. A man was ready to take this goat away. The goat then bore all the iniquity of the people to a remote area. Then it was let go to die in the wilderness. The ceremony with the two goats was meant to symbolize God's grace to his people Israel. The first goat served as an offering for their sins. Through its blood, atonement was made for the people's sins. The offering of this goat's blood served as a reminder for the Israelites that sin requires payment. God is offended by our sins. Because of our sins, we deserve to come under his judgment. Yet God was gracious. He allowed a substitute to take the place of his people. He did not require their death. A goat was slain in their place to pay for their sins. The second goat served in a slightly different way. All the iniquities and transgressions of the people were confessed over the head of this goat. Aaron the priest put his hands on the head of the goat to symbolize the transfer of guilt from the people to this animal. This sin-laden goat was then banished from the camp. It was led far away into the wilderness. Nothing unholy or unclean was allowed to remain in the camp. For that's where God lived with his people. Thus, the sending away of the scapegoat served as a picture to show the people how completely God removed sin's guilt from them. And so the ceremonies of the Day of Atonement, in the ceremonies of the Day of Atonement, the Lord presented to his people with a beautiful image of how gracious he was, how willing he was to forgive all their sins and iniquity. The two goats demonstrated how Israel's sins were covered in the sight of God. The first goat foreshadowed the way in which a once-for-all payment for sins could be made. A blood sacrifice was required. The second goat pictured how truly God was willing to forgive his people. The scapegoat symbolized how God would take away the guilt of his people's sins, how he would restore them in a relationship with him. Yet, beloved, we know that the sacrifices offered in the Old Covenant did not provide God's people 
with a fully restored relationship with God. They pointed to the way in which atonement could be made. But none of these sacrifices was sufficient to pay for our sins. As the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Do you know why lambs and goats and bulls could never pay for our sins? It's because God is a just God. He is fair in all he says and does. It is mankind who sinned. And so it's impossible for something other than a human being to pay for our sins. In specifying the type of person who can make payment for our sins, the Catechism says he must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. It's only one of us, a real human being, who can make atonement for our sins. And the problem is, is that we were all affected by the fall into sin. By nature, we are all totally corrupt and inclined to all evil. No descendant of Adam, born in the normal way, can avoid the stain of sin. This disqualifies us from serving as a mediator between God and his people. Our catechism explains that our mediator must be a righteous man because he who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Sinful people need help in being restored to communion with God. They cannot open the way to God for themselves or anyone else. There's one more thing that's needed for someone to serve as a mediator between our holy God and sinful mankind. We need to find someone to save us from God's wrath, from the everlasting punishment of body and soul that our sins deserve. No mere human being could ever do this. The burden of God's wrath against sin is so great It would crumple anyone who tried to carry this load. Our catechism teaches that our mediator must be true God, that by the power of his divine nature we might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath. It's only such a mediator who could restore us to righteousness and life. We need a mediator who is both true God and a true and righteous man. That kind of mediator is not readily available. Yet God in his grace foreordained. He would send his son to serve in such a way. He came to make the payment we could not make. Christ came in our place to serve as a substitute for us. He came to make atonement for our sins, to bear the burden of God's wrath that we might be restored to righteousness and life. In many ways, the ceremonies performed on the Day of Atonement point to Jesus Christ. Jesus is our great high priest, but at the same time, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Jesus came in fulfillment of the first goat that was offered as a sin offering. Hebrews 9 shows how Christ came in fulfillment of all the sacrifices of bulls and lambs and goats. Verse 28 says that Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus also came in fulfillment of the scapegoat. Our sins were laid on him. Christ bore them just as the scapegoat did. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53 verse 7 speaks about him being led away like a lamb to the slaughter. Verse 8 says that he was taken away, that he was cut out of the land of the living. Isaiah spoke these words to prophesy about the way Christ would make payment for our sins. These things happened to the Lord Jesus. He was not killed within the city of Jerusalem. He was crucified outside of the city. The author of Hebrews makes a point of this in chapter 13, verse 12. It says that Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He was cut off from the people of God. He was cast out. For anyone bearing sins could not remain in the place where God lived. Jesus' separation from God was also symbolized by the manner of his death. He was crucified, a symbol of being cursed by God. (coughs) And so we see how as a scapegoat, Christ bore our sins. This brings us to our second point, and it will see how we are restored to righteousness and life. We've seen that it is only in Jesus Christ that our sins are covered, that our guilt is atoned for. But I want to focus your attention on how that happens. Please consider with me the ceremonies surrounding the scapegoat. Leviticus 16, 20 and 21 describes a ceremony in which the high priest lays his hands on the head of the goat, and confesses over it all the iniquities and transgressions and sins of the people of Israel. This sin-laden goat is then sent far away from the camp. It was let go to die in the wilderness. In the ceremony, we see a transfer take place. Symbolically, all the sins of God's people are transferred onto the goat. It bears the punishment that they deserve. The goat is then separated from God and his people. It's driven into the wilderness to a remote place. Similarly, Christ bore our sins. To do so, he had to be cut off from God and from his people. It was symbolized in different ways. In the fact that Christ's punishment took place outside Jerusalem, away from the presence of the Lord. Christ's punishment involved being crucified, which symbolized being separated, being cursed by God. 
Yeah, beloved, Christ's sacrifice for our sins involved more than just a one-way transfer. It actually involves an exchange. Christ did not just bear God's wrath for our sins. In exchange, he also gave us righteousness and life. Paul expresses this beautifully in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He writes, For our sake God made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. God laid our sins on the sinless mediator, Jesus Christ, in order that we might share in his righteousness. The point, beloved, is simple. All our sins get loaded onto Christ, and his righteousness is transferred to us. It's why Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17 about how we are a new creation. When God looks at us, he doesn't see a group of miserable sinners. When we are in Christ, God sees not our sins, but our righteousness in Christ. God looks on us not as unholy objects deserving his wrath and condemnation, but as holy children of his love. A great exchange has taken place. Christ has taken our sins and iniquity on himself, bearing the burden of God's wrath for us. He credits us with the perfect satisfaction, the righteousness, and the holiness of Christ. Paul writes, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, beloved, this raises a very important question. How do you see yourself? Do you view yourself as a miserable sinner? Or do you see yourself as a new creation in Christ? It's a really important question. We began this sermon by asking, do you believe that even your most horrible sins are truly forgiven? Are there sins that you have confessed and repented of about which you still feel guilty? There's times when our conscience will accuse us that we've grievously sinned against God's commands. We can have a hard time letting go of guilt feelings. They can weigh on us. They can burden us deeply. We can feel so unworthy of God's grace because we feel like we don't deserve it. It can be hard for us to let go of our sin and our guilt. Yeah, beloved, we need to ask ourselves this question. 
Do we believe the gospel? Do we believe that Jesus Christ came into this world as a real human being? Do you believe that through his unique conception and birth, he was a sinless man? Do you accept the Bible's testimony that at the same time, he remained true and eternal God? If we believe that, we need to accept that Christ was uniquely qualified to serve as our mediator. The glorious news of Lord's Day 6 is that God has granted us the exact mediator we needed. Question 18 asks, but who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? Our catechism answers, our Lord Jesus Christ, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's another text where the Bible explains the great exchange that occurs between Christ and us. Christ takes on our sin and guilt. He gives back his wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Christ is our wisdom. He's the one who redeems us from the foolishness of the world and the blindness of our sinful hearts to turn us to the living God. Christ is our righteousness. He alone was perfectly obedient to God, keeping the law for us so he could make us share in his righteousness. Christ is our sanctification, that is, our holiness. Instead of looking at us as sinners, when we're in Christ, God sees not our sin, but our righteousness, our holiness, in Christ, in Him, we're a new creation. Christ is our redemption. He has bought us. He has paid the price, the ransom from our sins. And so He has freed us from the power of the devil to make us His own possession. The Bible uses vivid images to show how completely God forgives our sins and removes our guilt. Psalm 103 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. In Micah 7.18, the prophet asks, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He speaks of how God does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Micah says he will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Beloved, if you're truly sorry for your sins, God will not hold them against you. If God has forgiven your sins, you don't need to feel guilty about them anymore. The blood of Jesus Christ has atoned for them. They have been paid for. The slate has been wiped clean. Hebrews 9 talks about how the sacrifices of the Old Covenant 
were not able to cleanse the conscience of those who offered them. And in contrast, the blood of Christ is able to purify our conscience to serve the living God. We don't need to walk around with a guilt complex about past sins. Leave them at the cross. Be free of them forever. Instead, beloved, we need to live from the perspective that Paul teaches in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. As believers, we share in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe that his death is atoned for all our sins. We believe that by his resurrection, Christ works new life in us. We're made spiritually alive. We're enabled to love and serve him. Truly in Christ, we are a new creation. Beloved, if we know ourselves to be children of God, members of Christ, God's holy people, this will have a major impact on our lives. In Christ, we've been reconciled to God. We've been restored to righteousness and to life. We have the comfort of knowing that Christ has fully paid for our sins with his precious blood, that he has set us free from all the power of the devil. It's not how good we are or how bad we are that determines who we are. It's not what we do or what we fail to do that determines whether or not God will accept us. Our life with God is not based on us. It's based on the mediating work of Jesus Christ. Believing the gospel changes everything. It allows us to live in the joy of our faith. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing together from our supplement, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, page 74. (coughs) 